everyone. How is it going? Dylan Bowman here. Welcome to the Pillars Podcast. Welcome back after a week off. Did you guys miss me? God, I hope so because I missed you all very much. I'm finally back home after a long, exhausting, disappointing, yet valuable trip to Reunion Island where I raced the Grand Raid, the Diagonal Day Fu, a very difficult 100-mile race about 10 days ago now. If you missed it, I talked all about this race and my build-up to it in the last episode, in the final days leading up to the race itself. And today, we are back to do a little bit of a post-mortem in the race's aftermath. For those who don't know, the race did not play out as I wanted it to or as I expected it to. I did manage to finish, but only after a spectacular explosion, uh, some immense levels of suffering uh, in a proper death march that lasted nearly 28 hours, but I made it. And in hindsight, while my demise was totally predictable, there was a lot to learn from the experience and to help me share those learnings. I have again enlisted my big brother. That's right. Jason Bowman is back here as the guest host of today's episode where he again turns the tables on me as the interviewer, me as the interviewee, just like we did after the Hard Rock 100 a few months ago. And the conversation was really great. Again, it's such a joy to share these episodes with my brother. And as is Jason's true gift, the discussion is equal parts practical and philosophical. We talk all about the training, the race itself, the implosion, the finish and the lessons. So I hope you all really do enjoy it. I've got a lot more to update you all about very soon, but we'll keep the intro short today. So without any further delay, please enjoy this Grand Raid race recap between myself and my big brother slash spiritual advisor, the great Jason Bowman. Hey, hey, what's up, y'all? This is the Pillars Podcast. This is Jason Bowman speaking, which can only mean one thing, which is that we've got Dylan back in the hot seat here for a post-race report. Debo, what up? J-Bo, thanks for coming back on, man. It's good to see you. Good to see you. You You don't look uh, too skeletal. Yeah, well, I've spent the last 10 days sitting on my butt, eating food, drinking beer. So yeah, I'm feeling uh, quite jet lagged and exhausted, but uh, yeah, it's good to be home and good to have you back on the show. Thanks for coming back on to help me tell the story. Less triumphant of a conversation than the last time we did this after Hard Rock. Well, who knows? Maybe it'll be more triumphant. Just a note for the listener, of course, Dylan and I you know, check up, uh, check in with each other after races all the time, but we have not spoken since the, uh, what's it called? Grand raid diagonal yeah. Fu. I think it's easiest to just call it the grand raid. We'll call it the grand raid. Anyway, we have not spoken since then. Cause, uh, figured we would just save all the 
getting into the weeds for the podcast. So I don't really know too much about what happened save for what I saw on Instagram, which was definitely spirited. And of course our family group chat was also uh, <laughs> pretty interesting. I don't know if you've seen that yet, Dylan, but I think no. there was uh, there was some fear and despair in there for a little while. As there should anyway, have been for God's sakes, it was an absolute suffer fest, but yeah, we'll talk all about it. So yeah, the last time we talked like this was after Hard Rock. And I remember we framed the conversation within this attitude of uh, suffering is a gift. (laughs) And so I suppose the first good question is, uh, did your race on Reunion Island affirm or amend (laughs) your belief in the gift of suffering. <laughs> what a perfect place to start. And I'm just remembering now too, that at the end of that conversation, you asked me what was next. I said, yeah, I think I'm going to go to the grand raid. And you're like, Oh God, you're such an idiot. <laughs> and uh, I think the biggest takeaway from the race, whatever it was 10 days ago now, is the fact that you always keep learning. And just when you feel like, you know, you understand that suffering is a gift and you think you know how to approach, how to train for and how to execute good, long, hard hundred mile races, the sport throws a new thing at you. And yeah, you have to continually go back to the drawing board and continually learn. And I wish I could say that I was, uh, keeping the gift at the front of my mind during the course of the hundred mile traverse of reunion Island. Uh, I was incredibly unsuccessful in doing that. Whereas in hard rock that it felt like that was sort of my disposition for all 22 hours there at reunion. It was at least, I would say 10 to 12 hours of pure misery where I did not want to continue that. I didn't see the gift and the suffering. And the only thing keeping me charging forward was the fact that I had traveled so far to be there. And that if I made it to the finish line, I'd never have to do it again. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously in hindsight, I'm feeling differently now and feeling that the experience is valuable. Um, but yeah, the attitude wasn't great in, in the midst of it, at least over the course of the second half, especially. So what we know on Instagram is that you were feeling pretty good for about half the race, but then apparently there was a a really exposed steep and super hot part of the race. So I don't know, maybe give us just a high level um, look at what happened and then we can kind of get granular at certain points. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happened. I mean, I felt really comfortable and confident for the first like 14 and a half or 15 hours of the race. And I was back from the early leaders and not upset about that in any way. In fact, feeling really good about it. I uh, was, you know, sort of in the top 20 early slowly made my way into the top 10 eventually was sort of like in sixth place And this is, I would say, eight to nine hours into the race that I finally sort of moved up into the back half of the top 10 or into sixth place, which is where I sat for many hours. And at that point, I thought for sure I was running a perfect race. I was coming around every corner. I was just waiting to see one of the guys who was in front of me suffering and walking because I felt that they were going a little bit too hard. And 
in particular, there was three early leaders who got off course for only about five minutes, but got off course and then came charging back past me very early into the race, probably less than 50 K into the race. And of course we all know that getting off course is something that happens in the sport. And it's all about how you respond to that circumstance that ultimately determines whether you are able to make up for those types of mistakes successfully. And to me, it felt like the guys were rushing too hard to get back into the front of the race. So as they went past me, I felt like, wow, they're really pushing it early. And so as the race progressed, you know, several hours later, I just felt like there's these guys went off course, even though it was only five minutes, they probably had to work way harder to get back into the lead. They're pushing too hard. This is a really tough course. It's about to get hot. I am in a perfect spot. They are all going to explode. And this is going to be my, the second half of the race is going to belong to me. And then of course, what happened was that I was the one who exploded and and they all held it together to their credit, to their credit, all those guys held together. So what was the explosion? So if you look at the course profile about 60 miles into the race or so you come to kind of the bottom of the Mafat. So the center section of the course is in this incredibly beautiful this place that defies all description, a volcanic caldera, sort of in the center of the island. It's called the Mafat. And this section of the island is only accessible by foot or by helicopter. And to put it all in greater context, the island is tiny. I wish I knew the dimensions of it off the top of my head. The island is tiny but it has nearly a million people that live on it. So it feels like fairly Mm. densely populated, but the Mafat is like this crazy wild remote section of this tiny, tiny Island. And it's where all where it's, it's the crux part of the course. And so about hundred K in, you get to sort of the bottom of the, of uh, the Mafat section. Um, And it's there that it's probably nine or 10 in the morning. And you begin a climb up to an aid station called Roche Platt. What and time did you start? Like 9 p.m., right? 9 p.m. So I actually probably started this climb 14 or 14 and a half hours later. So it's probably 11 or 11.30 a.m. And at this point, it's in the baking sun. And I just completely melted down. Yeah, I uh, became incredibly dehydrated and began staggering and felt very overheated. And I don't know, maybe we talk about this also, but as you know, I've, I had a heat stroke a number of years ago and was feeling very cautious about my situation because I was feeling really hot and really dehydrated. And ultimately how much uh, elevation gain is that climb? It's only about 2,500 but in the direct sunlight, hundred degrees, and I was completely out of water. So, so why, why were you out of water? Because I mismanaged my hydration. And I actually, I mean, like I said, I was thinking about this stuff from the beginning. I carried two 
liter. I carried four soft flasks with me at all times. So I had two liters of water. And this is another thing that I noticed with the other guys. I thought they're not carrying enough water. They're not drinking enough. And I felt like I was on top of that. And there's an aid station before Roche plot called grand Place. there. I filled up all four of my bottles and you have like a couple little short ups and downs before you get to the, the actual bottom and, and begin to climb up to, to Roche plot. And, uh, about halfway up the climb, I ran out of water and I figured, you know, I was getting close or whatever. So just sort of kept marching forward and the aid station just never was, it was just not coming. And it was probably another 40 minutes before I finally made it to the aid station. 40 minutes without water in the direct baking sunlight. And in that 40 minutes, my whole race unraveled. Yeah. And so I got to the aid station and was basically like, okay, I need to, I need to take a break. Like it was, it was very clear that it was like, if I have any chance of getting out of the Mafai, because again, you have to get yourself out of there. Right. Unless it's like a desperate situation, they might send a helicopter for you. But I was like, okay, I got to get myself out of this section and then determine if I can make it to the finish line. Um, so it looks like there's an aid station like halfway up the climb. That's the Roche plot one. Yeah. Yeah. And, so then, it, and then there's another huge uphill to Mido or whatever it's well, called. So, so the Mido climb got cut out of the course this year. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So it's a different course this year that, which they thought was going to be much faster. So this was another thing that I think surprised a lot of us is they thought by cutting out the Mido climb, which is a iconic notorious section of the course, uh, that comes at a really difficult point. One of the most difficult climbs of the day is this, this Mido climb that, which comes 120 K into the race or something like that. So it's a critical piece of the race. Usually there was a fire on that section of the caldera. So they took that, that trail out of the course this year and diverted us down lower in the caldera, which made it even hotter. And hmm. even though it removed some of the climbing, it was very technical, like indescribably technical terrain. And that's another one of the themes of the race that I was totally unprepared for was just the, the, sh relentless, incessant technicality of it. I just didn't prepare well, uh, for it. So, uh, yeah, the Mido, uh, section was, was taken out. Um, so then but, you had to walk eight miles to this next aid station, which is where you were going to decide whether or not you were going to catch a ride to the end and DNF or whether you were going to death march home. Yeah. 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 So walk so, us through, uh, that, those eight <laughs> miles uh, as well. First, maybe I'll talk about the actual aid station meltdown because <laughs> I think it's relevant to the story. So the other thing that's cool here is that Ryan, our colleague and friend who, you know, was there to sort of help document the race. He had a media pass and he had to go into the Mafat too, because it became clear that, okay, if we're going to get any cool footage of this race and do it any justice, you have to go into the Mafat. And if mm. you go into the Mafat, it's a big freaking commitment. So Ryan had his own mission to attend to, got him, got himself to Roche plot. And as I came staggering in, it became abundantly clear that things were 
going sideways. Anyway, it was incredible. The level of care and attention that I got at this aid station, which again is really in the middle of nowhere. It's difficult to adequately describe, but they have to they have to drop all the food and water and stuff via helicopters at these aid stations. And there was a, a big group of medics and volunteers there who cooled me down, you know, laid me down on a cot, fed me some water and soup and stuff. And finally, after like 45 minutes, it was like, okay, time, time for you to start moving again. And and uh, Ryan had a media credential. And actually, one of the other interesting things about the race is that unlike a race like Western States or UTMB or whatever, like Ryan was able to just kind of do whatever he wanted to. So he was able to just kind of like stick with me for the eight miles that I just kind of like walked downhill. And of course, he wasn't giving me any support or whatever. It was just... Uh, taking pitiful photographs and, and videos of me, but uh, basically we would spent three and a half hours walking out of the Mafat to the next aid station. And again, it was like just brutally oppressively hot in a way that I, again, is hard to describe. And I'm not sure I've ever really experienced in another place. And finally we got to uh, the next aid station called Dobrow. And it was there that I was going to have to make the, you know, the ultimate decision of whether to continue or to succumb to the uh, challenges of the day and, and uh, cut my losses and call it a day. And uh, luckily I chose the former. And uh, so were you around. deliberating though, during those, those yeah. miles, dude, for three and a half hours, I couldn't, bring myself to say it out loud to Ryan, but that's all I was thinking about internally is like, how the fuck am I going to make it? I don't think I can make it. And I mean, you I was, still had like 60 K left, right? I had 50 K 50 K. And so, so what were the I, pros and cons that you were weighing in that, in that stretch of time? I mean, the, the pros of continuing on are obvious in that, you know, you, you finish, you get to, you get to sort of finish what you start and the satisfaction that comes from that. We were also making a little video about it, which I, I, you know, am not got to get that too, sick content and not too proud to admit that that weighed into <laughs> my, my thinking. And we had support from my sponsors to sort of make this video and, I didn't want it to be about me quitting. Uh, but, you know, mm. the thing that... You know, I, that's actually got a, a good kind of poetic angle to it right there. Because when you have the documentation via content, it's almost like you're kind of installing, wow, this is actually interesting. What you have there in the moment is the installation of the remembering self during the moment of experience. And because there's someone there who exists in this kind of temporal world that's on the other end of your journey, then you probably started to weigh the remembering self disproportionately to how you would have if you were just solo. Look at this, dude. A true man of literature and a philosopher, Jason, 
totally uh, reframing how I'm even, you know, remembering this in retrospect, but yes, I mean, it was part of my uh, thought process, but I mean, really the the thing was, is I just wasn't sure I, I physically could do it. I mean, I felt terrible. I felt completely defeated, obviously like the competitive aspect had gone out the window and I had come to terms with that, but physically, I mean, the course is so incredibly hard and I was not confident that I was going to be able to get myself to the finish line. So let's, let's, I have a question about that because when you say the competitive aspect was out the window, I mean, you know, I'm a pedestrian level fan of the sport, but I've been around, you know, for as long as you have in watching. And one of the things I've noticed is that most of the elite level athletes drop as soon as the competitive aspect of it is there. And it seems especially so in, in European races, I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but, um, I, and then in the other, on the other hand, is this just breathtaking experience of being at the finish line at hour 29 of something like Western States, right. Where you've been, you've already slept, had breakfast, woken up, come to the race. And then there's just this stunning display of endurance and, and pioneer attitude of these people trekking it in. So I wonder if you're not finishing, if you're not driven by the competitive aspect of it in that kind of uh, traditionally thought of way, what is it that you're going off of? And is it still a type of competition, just not in the kind of, you know, podium oriented way? Yeah. And this is also something that I was thinking about in real time too. And to be clear, there's definitely a time and a place to call it a day and cut your losses and pack it in and no judgment to any athletes who do make that decision. Um, and it's obviously like, I've been lucky, I think in my career to not have to deal with that very much. In fact, this was really the first time that I've had to like death March a race. And I feel pretty lucky that that's the case after 12 years of doing this to, to finally do it for the first time. But the, that's part of the thought process that I had was just like knowing, I mean, when I say I wasn't sure I could make it to the finish line, I mean, I knew that with one foot in front of the other, it was possible to get to the finish line. It was more just like, am I in a position to where I like, this is a, a worthwhile and a smart thing to do. And knowing of course that, I mean, I still finish like whatever 17th place out of 3000 people. So it's, there was a lot of people behind me who are going much, much slower than I was. So, and having the experience of seeing people see things through like this and always being so inspired by those people, it did feel like a rite of passage in some way and a poetic feature of my career to have the opportunity to actually see this one through. And the thing that 
kept me in that mindset with two things. Number one, I connected with a guy at this Dobrow aid station, a guy named Mike Agro, who I've sort of been friendly with just loosely on the, on the internet, never didn't really know him very well. Personally, he's a Swiss runner. He used to be a pro triathlete, now a really good trail runner. He was having his own little pity party at the Dobrow aid station when I came trundling in and, uh, after a little conversation, I asked him, you know, are you, are you going to keep going? And, uh, he's like, yeah, I think so. I said, you want to go together? And he said, yeah, let's do it. So we, we then, you know, kind of walked to the next aid station together, but that was the critical thing that I needed to get out of that aid station. And, and it, once I left that one, it was like, okay, you can't then drop at the next one because you're another three hours down the trail. And, at that point you have whatever it is only a half marathon to go. So God, that is mind melting. Yeah. But so then did the other you, thing did was you like, run any of that. I mean, barely, barely. If maybe if it was flat or something moderately non-technical downhill, but like I said, this race is so freaking technical, so freaking hard. And all the sections that like you look at on the course profile and you're like, Oh, that looks like a sweet downhill or whatever. It's like the most rugged technical, steepest, most challenging, relentlessly mentally exhausting terrain. Hmm. Um, and so that's why, you know, the other thing that sort of kept me going was just like, okay, I'm going to see this one through. And if I finish this time, because it's so hard to get to this place. And, uh, I felt, I, I mean, I really did feel like kind of a connection to the Island and I really enjoyed myself while I was there, but I just couldn't stop thinking about like, okay, if you quit, you're going to have to come back. If you finish, you never have to come back. <laughs> and, uh, and so connecting with Mike and the in the last, you know, few hours. And then also, uh, having that motivation of just, just finish this thing and put this race behind you type thing. So uh, did you guys then stay together for the whole time? <laughs> no, he beat me by an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so then at the next aid station at La Possession, he, uh, he, we, I was like sitting in a chair and he sort of did his crew thing quickly and he was like, are you ready? And I said, Nope, not ready. Go ahead, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to need some time here. And so he took off and then, but there's actually a cool, cool video. I reshared on my Instagram story yesterday of him and I at the finish line and me thanking him, thanking his crew who gave me some Swiss cheese at one of the aid stations. <laughs> and, um, Anyway, it was a cool connection. It was one of those cool stories that you hear all the time in our sport of like two guys who barely have any overlapping language, uh, communication who just like loosely follow each other on the internet, just like falling into the same pace, suffering together for a few hours. And now I feel like we're good buddies. So, well, yeah, let's, so let's take it through to the finish and then we can kind of rewind and zoom out or whatever. But the, uh, the other thing that those of us who were following online saw was that you had called harmony from the final climb. <laughs> yeah just bitching and moaning. <laughs> yeah. we, got, we got a live transcript of it, I think on Instagram. So I don't know. I'm, I think I'm remembering accurately that you've never done that before is call, oh. call from the course and during a race. Definitely not. <laughs> so yeah. what was, what was that? 
Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, like knowing that she was anxiously, uh, you know, refreshing the the live coverage and communicating with Ryan, and you know, fully aware of my deteriorating situation, uh, and also just a sheer boredom and suffering. I was like, you know, what? <laughs> I'm gonna just freaking pull my phone out and call Harmony real quick because I was just walking up this hill, you know. I, was wasn't a uh, a situation that demanded a lot of brain power or whatever. Yeah. And uh so I just called her and said, you know, hey, how's it going? <laughs> and like, <laughs> I'm okay, don't worry, I'm going to make it. But at the same time, this is absolute nonsense. Do not ever let me do this race again. This is pure suffering. I'm retiring, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> And, uh, I think at that point I just needed to, to complain, you know, and have yeah. my, have my complaints, uh, be heard by somebody rather than just like cursing into the darkness of the middle of the night and on reunion Island all by myself. And, uh, anyway, I think it was only like five or 10 minute conversation, but I had like two hours to go and it was, it definitely, uh, provided a little bit of entertainment there in the in the last miles maybe you should just do that now going forward is just chat during the hundreds maybe that's like the ticket i mean to i'm success. totally a chatty guy you know but <laughs> no you're not yeah, during well, a race it's it's hard to get like more than three syllables out of you well, you're pretty yeah. icy i guess early in a race with the other guys i was i was pretty <laughs> chit chatty but uh so um if you were 14 hours in when you hit the wall and you finished in 27 right? 27? Yeah, nearly 28. 27.40 was mine. So that was 13 or 14 hours in the proverbial pain cave. It was pretty much half and half. It was pretty much half the race. I felt freaking awesome. And half the race, it was like the worst the worst 14 hours of my so like life. in that second half did were there ever moments where you actually felt like you were catching a, a second wind? I mean, that was... Um, one of the things we talked about in the last podcast was how much the sport or just overall endurance relies on the ability to kind of start over to begin again and bounce back. Did you have any moments where you're like, Oh, maybe I can bounce back. Or was it really just like 13, 14 hours of misery? No, man. Like it was, yeah. And this is actually something I'm a little bit disappointed about and that I'm sort of like, I don't know. Yeah. Just disappointed in myself for not really trying to turn it around as much, you know, I would pretty much just resign myself to like, okay, this is survival. You know, this is just a, this is just going to be terrible, you know, get through it type thing. And I didn't, I never really like tried to find the joy and the gift in it either. You know, I had a terrible attitude also like a, a horrible attitude and, but I was, I was like, at least, I don't know. I was at least trying to take care of myself. Like I ate a sandwich, which was amazing. I ate a slice of pizza, which was great. I ate that Swiss cheese. I was drinking. I was still was probably like wildly dehydrated and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just, I didn't, I felt terrible and uh, I didn't, I don't feel like in retrospect, I did enough to try and catch that second wind. I do think, however, that 
I was totally unprepared for the race. And we should probably talk about that. And, and that's probably why I couldn't bring it back together just because I lacked the fitness to get through a hundred miler, like in a strong way. I, I was not prepared for the heat whatsoever. And also I, I didn't train appropriately for the terrain. And I don't think I really could have been properly prepared for it had I not gone to the island one time. And that's why I'm like, now I have to freaking go back and do it again eventually. Because like, I think that's the only way you learn how to do this race. Cause it's so different. It's so different from everything else that I, I don't think even if I did show up more fit, I don't think I would have still done the specific training necessary to do well on this terrain, which again was just so different from any other race that I've ever done. Yeah. And I know you were also balancing, you know, the difference between fitness and fatigue between hard rock and the grand raid. So, I mean, do you think it was a matter of like, you should have just been doing more miles it? Um, yeah. Yeah. I really, I wish I just had four or five more weeks to train because basically after hard rock, I took six weeks, you know, pretty much off and then kind of tried to get back into it around UTMB time and then just had a very abbreviated training block. I think it was only like four weeks of mileage of any respectable volume. And that's just not, it just wasn't enough. Like I had lost too much in the break that I took after hard rock to think that a four week training camp would have put me back at a place where I could get through another race of that difficulty. Like, and that's, I mean, one of the other things that is relevant to say, and that I might as well just talk about now is that my body feels great afterwards. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's a difference, I think in the sport where sometimes races launch you forward and you like build momentum off it and build fitness off of it. And sometimes like after hard rockers, like, okay, I had FKTs that pushed me forward at Joshua tree and backbone. And then after hard rock, it was like, okay, that's not one that launches you forward. That's one where it's like, okay, you need to really recover afterwards and take a break, not only physically, but also psychologically and stuff. And I felt like the huge break that I took after hard rock really freshened me up uh, physically, though I lost a ton of fitness, like it really freshened up my body and, and freshened up my, my brain and motivation too. But then I just didn't have enough time to get the fitness back. So, you know, now with 10 days removed from the grand raid, I think part of the reason why I feel great right now. Like I still feel a little bit of fatigue and stuff, but much better than I did after hard rock and much better than I usually do after hundred milers probably has something to do with the fact that number one, I was moving super slow. So I wasn't yeah, you like just on the spending gas time pedal. in the red. Yeah. I wasn't on the gas pedal near the end, which is when you can really blow your muscles and, and internal energy systems and stuff. But also I just feel like since I took that huge break after hard rock, just getting through this race and recovering, I'll be in a really good spot to sort of move forward into whatever comes next. So, 
you know, this was more of one of those races that I think is going to sort of propel me forward rather than something that's really going to set me back, which is kind of the opposite of what I expected. But yeah, I just, I needed to train more. And also, you know, the other thing is that I bang the table about all the time on the podcast and elsewhere, when I talk to younger athletes and try and give them advice and stuff, and this is so freaking frustrating to admit is just like not training specifically for the event, you know? And I, I did go in with a healthy dose of respect, knowing that this race is notorious for a reason and that the elevation profile doesn't really tell you exactly what's what you're in for. And the stats don't really capture just how hard of a race it is. I still just didn't go out of my way in that short training block to get on terrain similar to what I knew I was going to be facing on the Island. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't really seek out the technical stuff. I didn't really seek out anything hot. You know, I didn't do any heat training and those two things are critical for success. On it's green. still like 35,000 feet of elevation gain yes. though is over 104 miles or something, I right? Think it was like 32. So, but this is, so that's more than hard rock, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So, so think about that. It's uh, where hard rock is an average elevation of 11,000, uh, 11,000 feet average elevation for the race. This is at sea level. I mean, you, you go up to like 7,000, I think on the Island, but it's not an altitude race. So what, what it lacks in altitude, it makes up for in heat and technicality because the race runs usually about an hour slower. Like for somebody like for Francois grand raid runs an hour or two hours slower than hard rock. So really hard race, especially without altitude. So it gives you an idea of just how slow the terrain is. Like it is technical beyond anything I've ever really encountered in a race and relentlessly. So like you don't get a break, like even the last downhill dude, hideous, hideous descent down into Saint Denis and the awesome sort of finish line in the, uh, soccer stadium there. But it just it it just keeps coming at you. There's like never ever a kilometer or a mile where you can just like turn your brain off and jog. Yeah. You know, it's like it's so freaking hard, so hard. So I wanted I want to talk about um, the difference between stubbornness and determination, uh, where we could maybe define stubbornness as the of. Uh, you know, they're very much the same thing, but I guess what I would think of as the difference between stubbornness and deter and determination is that the nervous system when you're stubborn is super hard uh, and resistant, but the nervous system when you're determined is very resilient and open and flexible. And while they might lead towards different results, um, the means towards those ends are are quite different. And I wonder, you know, what your perspective of that is now in retrospect. Dude, uh, that's powerful, man. I love that. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to put that <laughs> on a t-shirt because dude, I was way stubborn. I was not determined, you know, like if we're using the definition that you just provided, it was like, I was white knuckling through the last 
14 hours or whatever. It was, there was no like, and that just oh, takes just, so much energy. Yeah. So the, again, and this is probably going back to what I said earlier about like why I wasn't able to really like find the, the gift and the suffering this time, because it was just like, I was stubbornly just like, get to the finish line. You never have to do this again. You're retiring, et cetera. Instead of like, oh man, what a great opportunity to celebrate your ability to be here on the island. You know, this whole trip was supposed to be sort of a metaphorical uh, kind of fork in the road in my life from leaving a career that I've been in for a long time to sort of pursue my real life's passion with a little bit more commitment. And it would have been a great opportunity in those last 14 <laughs> hours to really like remember that and, and kind of celebrate that and, and find the value in the, in the, in the death March in the vision quest but I, uh, I'd be lying if I said that I did. I mean, it was pure, unadulterated, stubborn, white knuckling, just get to the finish line. And it was like, yeah, man, it was, it was at least 12 hours of like, just pure misery, psychologically, of just like, looking at my watch again, going back to our hard rock combo. Remember, I was like, in retrospect, I was like, I felt like I wasn't looking at my watch at all. And that's always a signal. Yeah, it's just so perversely fucked up how many times we have to learn the same lessons over it and sucks. over, even when it's so easy to talk about them. But then, yeah, but it is, it, it's really an interesting, uh, it goes to show just how much the mind, the attitude dictates how things go. And it's like, you can do the exact same physical pursuit and, and like even take away the ridiculousness of a hundred mile race. But, you know, it's one of the things you learn a lot in sitting practices, the, is how to not exist with a calcified nervous system. I remember I used to give this example all the time of like, I used to live in this apartment building with a, just a few other people and the trash day was on Wednesday. This is ridiculous. This might be a waste of time. So feel free to cut it out. But there would, the trash day would always come and no one of the other uh, apartment people would take the trash cans out. So I ended up doing it every week. And of course I ended up totally doing it stubbornly resentful. and with this crazy resentful resistance based nervous system. And, you know, like as a quote unquote meditator, I feel especially <laughs> hypocritical and ridiculous when that happens. But then I remember one night, I hate this story of like, oh, I did a really good job, but I did one night it was raining and I was like, oh, here we go. It's Wednesday. No one's going to take the trash out. And for some lucky reason, I had the wherewithal to be like, all right, bro, like decalcify your nervous system for a second. And so I like really tried to just have a decent attitude. I like put on my raincoat and I walked outside and I wheeled the three bins out there. And it was like, it doesn't sound like it, but it was a, a, a pretty cool experience because I was doing the same thing I would have done no matter what. And it was raining and it was, you know, what the last thing I wanted to be doing, but I did just have that moment of like, Oh yeah. Okay. Like just do this. Like, 
<laughs> with some sort of lubrication on your insides and you'll actually find a moment of joy. And that's what ended up happening is I ended up like standing out there for an extra five minutes, just like looking at the rain. Just looking anyway, at the trash. That's a, yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's beautiful. I think, uh, yeah, decalcify your ner- nervous system. We need to print that on a shirt. And uh, so the other thing I thought of was like along those lines is I remember. So for those of the listeners who haven't heard um, Dylan and I actually, one of the very first podcasts was us talking about these meditation retreats that I do every year Mm -hmm. um, that are 10 days and super gut wrenching. And you definitely meet some of these same kind of monsters and demons and encounter incredible necessity for enduring spirit. But I remember one year, um, this was maybe three years ago on day 10, when you finally get to talk to the other people there, I always seek out the guys who are, who are the, you know, veterans and the legends and sit down and have lunch with them on the very last day. And I was talking to this guy and it was his 25th year of doing these 10 day sits. And I'm just in awe of these guys who have been doing it for so long. And I look up to him so much and we started talking and he told me that his very first try, he he quit. He DNF'd the Vipassana because he was having such a hard time and he just didn't know how to get to the finish line. He couldn't. And like every day is kind of like an aid station. It's like, if yeah. I can just get to day seven, I'll be all right, et cetera. Yeah. But I remember because he said um, he had this memory of it. And what he told me was that it was, I don't even remember, but like halfway through, he just sprung up off his sitting cushion, grabbed all his shit and literally ran down to the parking lot and threw his stuff in his car without his shoes on. Like he was like, get me out of here right (laughs) now. But the, one of the teachers, the male manager came and, and, you know, saw him and had a word with him in the parking lot. And this was the thing that this guy told me that he always remembered is that the guy told him, Hey man, you know, sometimes we meet these monsters up in that hall on the hill. And I just want you to know that once you're back to comfort and you realize that those monsters actually want to be greeted, that they'll still be here and we'll be waiting for you. And you're always welcome to come back and like, look those things in the eye. So please feel free. And you did a good job and don't worry about it. And when he told the story, I just was rushed with like all these waves of whatever it was and was like, that is so powerful. And then, of course, lo and behold, he had made it, you know, then he'd been every year for 25 years since then. Wow. So it's a, it's a really um, it's a beautiful thing to to be able to see the monsters. And all of that is a very long winded way of the next question, which is how much compulsion do you feel to go back and stare those particular monsters in the face again? Dude, first of all, that is a beautiful freaking story and an amazing metaphor for everything in life and especially what you and I do and two very different uh, pursuits uh, on the mat and on the trail. Wow. What a freaking amazing way to put it. I want to have lunch with that guy too. (laughs) Um, I have, yeah, I've pretty much come to the conclusion that it's if, yeah, there's, I'm obviously going to have to go back to this goddamn race eventually and do it again, because yeah, I don't know. I think I, well, first of all, it's a really, really special event. Like it's a really cool place and not many Americans have gone. Uh, and those who have gone have not done well on the men's side. 
Sabrina Stanley has and uh, big kudos to her for showing up and winning on the first try. Uh, I mean, I was completely unprepared and surprised with what I encountered at the race. And like I said earlier, I don't think I could have been properly prepared without seeing it for the first time. So now that I have, I would like to do two things. Number one, go back myself eventually, probably not next year. I think I need a year to decompress from those monsters that I confronted, but eventually I would like to go back. The other cool thing is, and this gives me some hope for the future as well. Of the guys who finished in the top five or the top six, maybe it was. Well, first of all, one of the winners, again, there was two guys who sort of tied for the win. One of the winners is Ludo Pomeray, legend. I think he's 46. And there was two guys who I believe are in their 50s and another guy in their 40s in the top six. So I think like in the top six, there was like Danny Young who tied for the win who's about my age and the rest was like masters runners. So hmm. it's a race that I think favors strong, mature, uh, yeah, just older guys who have uh, a, a good head on their shoulders and maturity and intelligent race strategy. Um, well, the other thing we talked about last time was the, um, your kind of intuitive sense about how the race is going dude, to go, which oh, you usually have. Thank God you brought this up because we need to talk about this. <laughs> so uh, this is a really important thing. I think like, and it's something again, where it's just like, God damn it, Dylan, learn, learn, learn your lesson. Okay. Like this is something I've been through. This is something I've been through a lot is like, a week before the race, I was feeling, or a, re, a week before I was supposed to leave for the race, I was feeling totally overwhelmed by life. I had so much going on, wrapping up work, doing all my other side hustle stuff, trying to train. I was traveling, doing commentary. I mean, just like I had, it was nonstop, like too much stuff going on. My training, I, I wasn't feeling fit. I wasn't feeling confident, especially for a really long, hard race. Um, and I nearly bailed on the trip because I was just like, man, I don't, I'm just don't feel up to it. I don't feel prepared. And I know myself well enough. And to your question and to what we talked about before the hard rock episode is like, I usually do know with a fair amount of certainty, whether I'm ready or not. And even though I felt like fresh and I had a few like decent runs, if you made me sort of pick one way or the other gun to my head, are you ready? Or are you not ready? I would have said not ready. And in that situation, don't freaking go. <laughs> and so even though it was an awesome trip, there was so many positives to take away from it. And it was like, it was always meant to be this kind of like celebration of this life transition that I'm in the middle of right now. And for that reason, I was like, you got to just go. And I posted about this on Instagram before I left. Cause I was listening to a podcast where a guy said something that I thought was really brilliant. And that is that risk is the tariff paid to leave the shores of the predictable. Risk is the tariff paid to leave the shores of the predictable. 
And for me, this is, I heard this right when I was waffling about whether I should go or not. And I was like, you yeah, know, cause you have to be also open to being wrong about your, you know, intuition right. in that way. I was like, this feels risky. Like I don't feel up to it. Like I don't feel fit. I don't feel like I'm ready for a great performance, but like, who knows, you know, like let's take the risk, whatever, you know? And, you know, in hindsight, I'm not sure I regret going to do it, even though the outcome was well below what I wanted it to be. But it is another one of those just things where it was just like, okay, now you've learned again, you need to listen to that instinct of like, dude, if you're not feeling ready and psyched and like, you know, have that feeling of just like, you know, let's do this mission, then it's, you're not going to perform to your potential. And so, especially when we look at the contrast between how I felt right before hard rock, where it was just like, let's do this thing. This is what a gift. It's so much gratitude to just before grand raid being like, should I even go? This feels stupid. It's like, yeah, well, look at the outcomes of both of those. And you can see, you can trace the line backwards to exactly how you were feeling beforehand. And it's easy to predict how it's going to go in that, in that case. And so it's just another one of those things that I've got to relearn for the thousandth time. It feels like, and we'll yeah, and that's also under. like such a, you know, that's another big part of these practices that I have hitched myself to, which is, you know, you have to repeat it enough times where the concepts actually become able to be displayed through behavior. Like it's really easy <laughs> yeah. to be like, everything is impermanent and we're all one. <laughs> but then in the moment of like, I'm hungry, it's like, this is permanent. And whoever stands in the way between me <laughs> and a burrito is my arch nemesis. Isn't this great? Like, cause you know, you're a, you're a teacher and I'm a freaking podcaster and we each <laughs> like, sort of like, I don't know. I try and sort of share my learnings as much as I can with the next generation. And oftentimes like kind of feel like, you know, the grizzled veteran with tons of wisdom. And then I go and make just these rookie mistakes or it's just like, dude, you got to train on technical terrain. Like you got to actually <laughs> seek that shit out. You know, it's going to be a hundred degrees. Don't you like get in the damn sauna and like, you know, it's like the hardest hundred miler in the world. You, you should probably train for more than four weeks going into it. And in hindsight, it's just like, ah, oh, you're such an idiot. But yeah, at the same time, yeah, it's uh, another good learning opportunity. And uh, yeah, we will have re repeat it a few more times before it actually gets reflected in behavior, probably. You know, and now it strikes me too that the opposite is also true in a way, because I remember something on the the Instagram during, or maybe it was after, but you said something to Harmony or Ryan that was like, please remind me of how truly horrible this was because I'm sick in the head and I'm going to want to come <laughs> yeah. back. And that, that is, um, you know, that's in, well, not in an obvious way, but in some ways the opposite thing where it's like, you knew in the moment, uh, your behaviors were demonstrating a wisdom that you knew you were not going to subsequently have 
after the intensity was over. Meaning I, it, I recognized that I was going to come back no matter what sort of thing. No, well, no, like you, well, yeah, but in the more even superficial way, you realize that you really never wanted to do it again. Uh, um, but, and that's maybe a, a good way to, to kind of tie it together is the, you know, I guess the question is why, what is it like there in the pain cave and why do we put ourselves through these hard things? I mean, for entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> that is so sick. Uh, no, I, well, I mean, I think that's one of the things and I, I, there's, I think everybody's got their own motivations. I think, for me, I like to compete. I like to travel. I, I just genuinely love the process of training, of, you know, figuring out the logistics and the strategy of trying to like make up for my perceived lack of talent with sort of better execution. I love that game. And I also, yeah, just like it helps you sort of figure out the deeper meanings of, of life and the, the deeper lessons of, you know, of being a human being of just like seeing through hard things of, uh, working hard for what you want of, you know, being gracious in victory and defeat of sportsmanship of humility of camaraderie of community. I mean, that's a, that's a reason why we do it. And, and there is immense value of just freaking getting it done. Even when there's seemingly no value in real time of just like, except for, you know, if I finish, I never have to do it again. Yeah. I think I'm proud of it. I'm proud. I mean, I, one of the things I yeah, said yeah. after, after the race is like, yeah, simultaneously disappointed and also like super proud. I didn't give up because like, I really wanted to, in fact, one of a funny anecdote is as I left that Dobrow aid station, I thought that I didn't have a headlamp with me, like a, a proper headlamp to go into the night. And for, for of half a second, I was like, oh, praise the universe. This is my excuse to quit because I don't have a headlamp and I couldn't possibly leave this aid station and go into the night without a headlamp. So because I don't have a headlamp here, because it was in one of my future drop bags, because I thought I was going to be much further down the trail by the time I needed to pull my headlamp out. I thought that was going to be my excuse to pull the plug. And then I realized of course, that I did have a headlamp with me, a sufficient headlamp to get me through the night. And I was like, damn it. Okay. There goes the excuse. Poor guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I think, you know, there's something about that whole, the dichotomy of the remembering self and the experiencing self too. And I think there's something about just putting yourself through intensity, like in these intense experiences you really get super close to this resplendent truth that is very languageless and very sensational and very much not based in concepts and i think there's a 
some sort of subconscious understanding that the closer you get to those types of truth um, with consistency, the easier it is to help them kind of leak into the same version or a different version of the same person that also does things like sit in front of computers and lie down on couches. And, and maybe the, the, the real gift of the intensity is as much about that invitation to, to acquaint oneself with those languageless things as it is to uh, really master the ability to find the determination over the stubbornness. So yeah, I don't know. God, you're so I mean, much I'm, better at talking I'm than I am. In two weeks to go sit for ten days. So hopefully, I'll remember one <laughs> percent of any of that while yeah. I'm in my own uh, pain confront, cave. Confront the monsters. No, I mean that's what a perfect way to say it. It is beyond concepts. It is beyond words. It's a beautiful thing to just have the opportunity to to push that far and that deep. And whether it's at the grand raid or sitting on a cushion for 10 days. It's, you know, it's the same thing. So what's, uh, what's next? Uh, it's just got to figure out my entire life top to bottom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I was really hoping that, uh, it was going to go perfectly and that I could, you know, spend the rest of the year just kind of Basking in the glory of a great hundred mile finish. Uh, well, maybe it did go on, perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it did. Maybe it did. We'll, uh, we'll see what the future holds, but yeah, the rest of the year, I got to focus on business, on life, on, uh, on whatever's next for me and what we're doing. And, um, yeah, I got a lot, a lot of work on my plate, a lot of things to figure out. So we'll what about, are there any, are you eyeing any races? I saw that you just signed up for the hard rock lottery. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in the hard rock lottery. I, I'm not sure what my chances are. I'm they're, they're very low. Um, so yeah, next, next year is still very much up in the air. Um, I anticipate that UTMB is going to start announcing their new, uh, schedule of races, maybe as early as this week, uh, which will help me start thinking about that. If I don't get into hard rock, I'll probably make UTMB the main goal for next year and sort of build the calendar around that. Um, but yeah, you know, for now it's, it's all about just, you know, embracing the off season running when I feel like it. My plan is to really do, to be a little bit more specific to do lower volume, but a lot of higher intensity stuff. So kind of go back to what I did at the beginning of this year that I think set me up so well, and that is just, you know, run an hour, hour and a half a day, and then twice a week, just kind of sprint up hills a few times and just hit the gas pedal hard and mm -hmm. keep the overall volume low. I think, uh, it's really good to, to just sort of shift the emphasis, shift, shift the stimulus a little bit after a long summer of just kind of slog, slogging miles out to keep it shorter and harder. Yeah. Well, tis the season for excess and getting fat. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> All right, bro. Well, good to, good to get the full download. Yeah. No, thanks for doing it again. It's always fun. I mean, this is great. We got to make this like our, our thing. Every, uh, <laughs> every race, we just have to record a, 
a little debrief. These are really fun. So yeah. appreciate you uh, steering the ship again, J-Bo. Always My a good pleasure. Time. Thanks for having me. All right, bro. Let's catch up soon. All right. Peace. Okay. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks so much to Jason for again, crushing the hosting duties. He really needs to start his own podcast. And uh, I really love the dynamic of the two of us chatting after my races. I hope you guys enjoy it too. Let me know if you do, if you want us to keep this theme going. I'd love to hear from you guys. Let me know if it is a format that you do enjoy, or if you think it's too self-involved and uninteresting, please also let me know that. That would be valuable information to have as well. But thanks for listening, guys. Always do appreciate it. Thanks also to Jason for smashing the hosting duties. Go follow him on Instagram. You can find a link to his profile in the show notes. He's a a great photographer. He's amazing with words. So he's definitely worth a follow over there. And as always, if you enjoy what we do with the show and you want to be part of the Pillars community, we would love to have you. Please go download and subscribe to the Pillars training app where for only $10 a month, you get a great library of trail and ultra related content and training and community Zoom calls, all to share with a vibrant group of awesome people, people who I now consider great friends and who I love sharing the journey of this sport alongside. Please do join us with the Pillars app. And also, if you wanna help us keep the lights on over here, we would certainly also appreciate if you would join our Patreon page. You can find links to both the app and to our Patreon in the show notes. And we certainly do appreciate all of those people who are supporting us on those two platforms. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks everyone for listening. Love you all so much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.